When I experience same-sex attractions yet resist these temptations, I am not guilty of sin. That's not true. That's not true. That's neither Anglican nor biblical nor true. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing? Great, man. Yesterday was a real two-word sort of day around our house, uh, judgment and grace. We had a new refrigerator installed, which is something we've been wanting for a long time, and there was much rejoicing. But then when we turned the water back on after the installation, our hot water heater turned into Old Faithful, spurting 50 gallons of warm, disgusting water all over our basement floor. So that's the headspace I'm in right now. Any and all weird edits or unfocused thoughts are directly attributable to the plumber in my basement. (laughs) What are your guys' greatest home ownership disasters? Oh my goodness. Well, right now, okay, you want to hear the worst? This this is really bad. This happens three years ago, two years ago. Uh, We started smelling some horrible smell um, as we were going down our stairs. We have have basically a three-story house. If we live in the top floor, we just got the bathroom installed up there. Um, We started smelling this horrible, horrible smell going down the stairs. And it it smelled strangely like feces. <laughs> and it turns out we have an old we have an old house, and it turns out that our old 1916 pipe was leaking all the brown water coming down out of the toilet mm. the floor into the wall. It was awesome. Yeah. Was That's a, so that was fun. <laughs> Good old Binghamton. That's right. Yeah. Moved to Binghamton. Yeah, and it was like it was like zero degrees outside. So of course it was. You couldn't go outside either with the smell. Yeah, when Liza and I were back at uh, Trinity, when we bought our first house um, for $58,000, three-story house for our car payment was more than our mortgage. Um, one of the pipes in the basement burst, and there was like three inches of sewage uh, on the floor. And at that moment, uh, we called the plumber, and I was either going to – he was going to fix it or I was going to burn the place down. I was like, there's, there's no – this is not what I signed up for. And, um, and he walked down like almost like a joke from Mike Rove show, like in boots, like eating like a Kit Kat bar in one hand, like with a <laughs> shovel in the other. It was like, it was like, like all the movies where the, the, uh, the guy who's the doing the autopsy has like a sandwich in one hand, you know, and he's yeah. doing the audit cadaver. It's like, that's, that's based in reality. That's, that's a jobs reference. Life. Love it. You know, and he was a, a operatic baritone before that's he, right. that's, that's pretty right. cool. I like that. He's a Renaissance man. Indeed. Well, it's also been a red letter week in the ACNA. A couple weeks ago, the College of Bishops issued a pastoral statement on identity and sexuality, a statement which we all liked and discussed in episode 36, for those who want to go back and listen, a statement which asked the church, one, to deeply care pastorally for those Christians who experience same-sex attraction, two, to not find our identity anywhere but in the finished work of Christ, and three, to refrain from using the phrase gay Christian in the interest of clarity. There was, of course, the predictable reaction from both sides. I suppose even our reaction was entirely predictable. Those who felt that the statement struck the right tone and those who felt it was overly dismissive of Christians who both experience same-sex attraction and yet want to uphold the, quote, biblical sexual ethic, that is the reservation of sexual intimacy of any kind to within lifelong heterosexual marriage. And then on Monday, a letter called Dear Gay Anglicans appeared on the internet. Matt, do you want to walk our listeners through what that letter was and what happened next? Uh, yeah, it was it was a strange thing. First of all, it, the letter seemed to attempt to, like, to uh, recover the identity gay um, after the, the bishops had asked that we not use that um, as, a, as a prefix. So instead of gay Christian, it was gay Anglican, um, <laughs> it was, which struck me as a Jesuitical or, or just an attempt to get around what, was, what the bishops tried to say. But essentially the letter was several confessions we confess that the church has, has treated those with uh, gay people with with a, a different standard than they treat uh, other people with different kinds of sexual brokenness. We confess that the church hasn't done enough to help the, the, those who have uh, same-sex attraction live sanctified and discipled lives. We confess, they went on to say something about the um, 
the, the use of reparative therapy that has led to 90 something percent of those who've been, uh, well, the suicide rate and I can't forget the stats, but essentially it restated a lot of, of the position that the bishop's statement was trying to confront and, and correct. So it was, it was a kind of, it was, it was fairly rebellious. It was very much, and the archbishop wrote a letter to his own diocese, said this, and said, characterized the dear Anglican Christian letter as in your face. In your face which it was. Yeah. yeah. And, and said, this is, this was a, this, he said, surely some people who signed it did not mean to be disrespectful, but the tone of the letter was certainly one of defiance and that that the content of the letter was opposed to definitely opposed no matter what what the the authors of dear anglican christians said which was we are in willful compliance with the, the statement regardless the archbishop said no this this really wasn't this was in in contra- contradiction to what we said anyway the when that when the dear anglican letter came out um, I would say that was, I don't know if it was Monday or yesterday. It was, it was Monday, Monday in the afternoon. Yeah. I think. yeah. And all yesterday, it was just, I guess, internet meltdown. <laughs> on well, in, our own, in our own little, our own little yeah. um, mostly non-blue checked world. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, on Twitter, all of Facebook groups, people, and it was interesting, you know, because I, I now maybe I'm because of who I am. I I'm, I'm more isolated from the more revisionist progressive voices, but, but the, you've been blocked by everyone. Yeah. I mean, okay. So maybe, maybe, this, maybe this is not a maybe this is not a fair. Although the authors emailed you in advance, right? I was one of the ones the author emailed in advance, yeah. and and it was it was a strange thing. This letter. It, it seemed when I when I read it to another person to a bishop bishop in fact. This bishop said that it was exactly like the one that he got, except it, you know, had my name instead of um, instead of his name. It, it was a, it was a letter was an attempt to get out in front of it and say this is not in any way an attempt to undermine the bishop's statement. <laughs> where is the bishop? Where did the archbishop write? Well, it says they're not undermining our pastoral statement, comma. They actually <laughs> are. Period. <laughs> <laughs> right. Could you be more clear, Your Grace? That's right. right. No. What I mean, but but still, that that all yesterday there was a lot of back, a lot of uh, pushing back on just about every venue. I didn't see too many people in favor of it. Um, and by the evening, we at Stand Firm put out our. The, the a statement for people to sign and we i didn't write it uh uh drew collins um uh, uh from south carolina he wrote it and we put it up on the stanford site we were getting signatures in support of the bishop's statement um and then uh, very soon after that the archbishop's letter was published um and then i think it was this morning maybe it was last night i went to bed early so i don't know but uh, i think it was then, last night it was last night. Okay, there, the dear Anglican Christian letter came down um, with an explanation that uh, Bishop Menz, who is Peter uh, Valk's bishop, recommended that he take it down or asked him to asked take it down. Asked him to, yeah. Yeah, and so he did because he's in obedience to his bishop, even though bishops aren't always right, he says. So, so even though I don't always agree with bishops' decisions, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I stand in obedience to my bishop, and so I'm taking it down, which is essentially, I don't agree with this guy, but I'm going to take down my, <laughs> my thing anyway. And then the latest thing was just, yeah. I would say about a minute or two before we got online, the gay Anglican Christian people, uh, Peter Valk has showed up in his Twitter feed, issued what seems to me one of the more patronizing statements I've read in a long time. Uh, should I read it or you want to? Whatever you think. I, I mean, think I agree. So, why did we take down the Dear Anglican's letter, Dear Gay, Gay Anglican's letter? The ACNA has been carefully cultivating trust with Anglican provinces in Africa. In particular, mm-hmm. the ACNA has I mean, been, do we need, can we just stop and critique every single sentence? Because, <laughs> like, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. cultivating I mean, since the ACNA is the fruit of missionary, in part, missionary impulses from Orthodox Africans seeing a demise of the mainline church in America you know, comma. I mean, this is unbelievable. This is just a perfect example of, of people new to the game 
who are, um, you know, however well-intended, and I don't know the man and I don't want to impugn his, his, his sincerity. I don't think there's any reason to. And I, and I have read his Why Say Gay manifesto, I guess you would call it or something. And, and we can talk about that too. And so I, you know, I have some sympathy for him, but, but it's, it's, there's, there's so much more behind the scenes and so much more going on than, than what any of this was aware of, it seems. And, that, and that's what's so shocking to me. Some of the signatories, some of the original signatories who are in fact, and have been involved for, since the beginning or since the past, since I've been involved, you know, 20 something years now, showed such lack of, um, appreciation for how difficult it was to get to a place where you had a college of bishops speak unanimously, unanimously, um, with unanimity, unanimously with unanimity, universally <laughs> and, and unquestioned <laughs> and whatever the using. Is it all of them, Janie, or is it just a few? Yes, it was all of them. <laughs> um, they had, they had unanimous integrity um, <laughs> that we, how long it took to get to a place with a college of bishops that was its own province that spoke with unanimity, un, oh my, oh, Spoke, spoke in one voice about a contentious issue with pastoral sensitivity and courage and conviction and, you know, go down the list of things, which we rightly celebrated a couple of weeks ago. It was like we're in a real church, like a real church, the one that has been fought for and, and bled for and and people have died in the hope of, you know, it's like it's like uh, it's like uh, Hebrews 11, you know, all these people that came before. I mean, I think of like Peter Moore, blessed memory and and and, um, you know, Blanche Rogers and, and um, you know, half the faculty at Trinity School for Ministry, for goodness sakes, you know, who wanted to see something like a college of bishops stand up and courageously profess something that was countercultural and Christian to an unbelieving and, and frankly shocked and scandalized world. And then we have this, we have this, and it was supported by people who should know better. Um, and I feel for this guy, because I don't know how long he's been in Anglican, but he's only, he seems to be maybe in his early 30s or something, so it couldn't have been that long. And so there are people who should have helped him understand the nuances before he was in this position, in, in, in a certain part, I think. I mean, again, it's not to, to, to take away from, from kind of the comedy, the tragic comedy of the entire episode, really. But, you know, to put, all of a sudden, to put to have you know a handful of people put uh, the archbishop on the phone with with archbishops from around the world who are facing incredible uh, pressures as he said about this very question as if we weren't aware of that and as if that was somehow going to be a you know a new uh, concern it's just unbelievable to me, you know? I mean, it's like, dear Anglican, you keep saying dear Anglicans, dear gay Anglicans, but it's like the dear John letter, you know? It's like, you wanna have dear Anglican be a similar one for this one and be like, let's, you know, let's call it because we've fought this, we've, we've hammered this out and there was a definitive word spoken after much deliberation and consideration. And if you can't agree with it, well then, you know, one of the two parties needs to make a, um, a decision about a way forward. And, you know, I'm grateful that the Archbishop uh, just doubled down on what the college has said and um, comfortable and, and in fact, very encouraged to be. And I mean, who was it just tweeted? Somebody just tweeted something and said, dear ACNA bishops, like, by the way, when you stand up for something and exercise loving uh, and compassionate church discipline, um, it, it gives great comfort and joy to your sheep. Like, yes, when I see a shepherd take down a wolf, yeah. in front of me that had been gnawing, you know, I didn't even realize if it had like been slowly picking off members of my distant, you know, flock. And then all of a sudden it's like the shepherd comes in and, and lays them out. It's like, well, Hey, maybe I can, um, you know, I can lay out by this beach instead of sit with one hand on a knife, you know, or whatever. I just mixed so many different weird metaphors, but that's right. That's, I was actually thinking. Well, no, it's, going, nice, it's nice to see you. We, we, if you were in the you were in the Episcopal Church, you know, it's, it's nice to see bishops be bishops, and that 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 hasn't happened for a long, long time in the Anglican world, and it's it's happening in the. That's ACA. right. They were less afraid of losing their endowed parishes than they right, were. Right. Uh, and that they, uh, they, they don't, but you know, that's that's absolutely true. I think that's that's a huge factor in. Yeah, or club memberships, or I mean, yeah, whatever yeah. you know, invitations um, to the right Christmas parties. No, not that, mean, not that these guys wouldn't have stood up anyway. I mean, in fact, the bishops that were. That led us out of the Episcopal Church had to be willing to lose a lot of that stuff to, to to leave the Episcopal Church, but but still, I mean, not having all of the perks and privileges that the average Episcopalian bishops have means 
that you have more courageous shepherds. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, some bishops are like their diocesan manse is like the third bedroom of their, that's right. It's like, you know, I mean, I love it. I mean, but that's beautiful. And I think it it, it shows, it's like, we've already lost everything. So what else can you take from us? You know, I mean, or, or, in, or like we've already proven that we would lose. I mean, no one voluntarily, I mean, Matt, you're a living example of this. Like no one wants to lose their property or their church, but in the on the other side of it, what's what good is the whole world if you forfeit your soul, you know, it's we'll get your little reading. church. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, I've read, somebody said that once, um, but no, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you reading the, the statement, Matt, but it's like this dear gang, the dear gay Anglicans letter. I mean, this whole thing has just smacked of such a tone deafness to the, okay. the reality of the ACNA and what we've come through and the sacrifices and, and the, pre, the presumption that these bishops aren't pastors makes me so mad like these men have have all like most of them are twice as old as many of the people that are supporting this letter and they have lived their entire lives ministering to and amongst broken people and all sorts of quote-unquote sexual identities and have shown leadership and have been called by god to have greater degrees of leadership and have spoken as pastors and theologians and shepherds and the idea that somehow they their voice needed to be corrected or somehow added to just in case they were misunderstood. It's like, you know, I know granddad speaks harsh, but he's got a good heart, you know, like, don't worry. Like he says some mean things to the TV, but he really, he'll go get his ice cream later. You know, that's what this whole letter was like. And it's like, well, okay, I, give I, me I, a break. I'm sorry. I'm going to get off my, I'm going to get down <laughs> off of my. Off of my I just horse. back in Sorry. back in two thousand one. Maybe you maybe you children remember this, but back in two thousand one, <laughs> when I was just, when the sexuality stuff was beginning to, to be really hot, there that they had the Lambeth Conference of two thousand one. Oh, no, I'm sorry, nineteen eight. Wait, I'm even. I'm dating myself. This is Your email address is Lambeth98. <laughs> I don't know if I want to give out Matt's email address. Okay. But, but <laughs> that, Bishop Spong. Proton mail. Right. <laughs> bishop Spong was still a bishop in those days. And, and there was a big controversy because uh, the passage of, of resolution, uh, uh, you know, I forgot, what the one, I forgot what the resolution was called, but it was in Lambeth98 that said the position of the Anglican communion is that same-sex relationships are, are, are sinful and that sex is reserved for marriage. Bishop Spong after that said, well, the reason that vote succeeded is because some, uh, some Western conservative bishops had African bishops over for chicken dinners and, and fed them. And, you know, they don't, the, the Africans only really understand the issues. They understand chicken. <laughs> was essentially what he was saying and it was patently racist i mean you know, as racist as only a white liberal can be racist and this what we're reading what i'm about to read to you right now is is like that the same yeah. kind of thing okay so in particular let me read uh let me go back and read the first sentence there jd because uh our, <laughs> well, let our, me our, stop you again right there i'm just kidding i'm just kidding that's right wind, wind them back up wind them back right, right. up the ACNA has been, this is from the Dear Anglican Christian, Dear, Angl Dear Gay Anglican, same author wrote this. The ACNA has been carefully cultivating trust with Anglican province in provinces in Africa. In particular, the ACNA has been encouraging Anglican provinces in Africa to use their considerable political power to illegalize, quote unquote, the practice of homosexuality. Um, I just want to pause here. Um, I, I do favor, you know, if there's like a death penalty or imprisonment, uh, prison sentences, I, I can see wanting to go in there and, and try and alleviate those. But uh, I don't think any Christian denomination should be in the business of, of making sodomy legal or trying to legalize sodomy where it's illegal. The, that's, that goes back to the, to the legal sexual code that God has given in, in Leviticus as far as, you know, what states, what, what governments are, are, have the right, every right to do is make, is make such practices. Well, and to be fair, you know, the, the government, even now in our like incredibly permissive culture in America, there are things that are legal to do in your bedroom, even amongst right. consenting adults. Yeah. Like there still exactly. are. I mean, it's so, hard to I, believe. So again, I mean, I, I'm not, we don't need to talk about that at length, but, yeah. but I, I think your point is well taken. I would like to see the evidence of this too. I don't know. I want to know. I don't know what exactly. 
Well, I've spoken to some of my African friends about this um, in passing when they would come through various mission conferences and things. And again, there's a lot of variations. It's a huge country. There's a lot of different people and there's some good and bad actors. But some of them are continent continent. That's what I mean. Uh, Some of them are um, some of them are explicitly dealing with like predatory um, sort of, you know, criminal criminal sexual activity, period, whether it was homosexual or not. I mean, again, not not to not to de- defend it. I, yeah, um, no, I, I, I don't doubt it in the context. I think that it's 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 an unhelpfully vague thing to say, and it doesn't do justice to to the to the live situation of our brothers and sisters who are Anglicans who are in places where these laws exist. What I want to see evidence of, though, is is what. He, he says the ACNA has been encouraging Anglican provinces in Africa to use their considerable political power to repeal laws and legalize the practice of homosexuality. I want to see evidence of that. But, what, yeah. I, but I, suffice it to say, I don't want to call Pater dishonest, but I don't, I don't trust, given the, the last publication and, and this one, I have, I'm having a hard time trusting what he says. So I would like to see, to see some documentation for this. For example, when the, when the, when the, Gay, dear gay Anglican's letter came out, he indicated that it had been vetted by provincial authorities. And one of the things the Archbishop said is that that was never vetted by anybody in the, in the provincial yeah, And that language all. was changed. It was yeah, changed. Yeah, language was changed, right. So I, I, I really, I highly doubt the veracity of this first, or at least the second sentence here. All right. So because of the letter, the, of the language and cultural differences, leaders in those provinces found and misinterpreted the letter as proof that the ACNA was dishonest about their commitment to a traditional sexual ethic. So again, because of the language and cultural differences, leaders in those provinces found and misinterpreted the letter. You know, they, they just weren't sophisticated enough to understand how we Westerners talk about sex. And had they been more more sophisticated, you know, maybe we should, maybe we should you know, maybe we should have some schools over there to teach them how to right. how to how to think like Westerners um, before they read our documents, because you know they're just not quite qualified to, to get it. So these these provinces or those provinces were at risk of reversing their efforts to protect gay people from hateful sodomy laws. I'm trying to put this together. They were at risk of reversing their efforts to pr- protect gay people from hate from hateful sodomy laws because of. The, the gay Anglican Christian letter that came out yesterday? Is that what he's trying to say? So what he's saying is that the, the, the ACNA was working with these provinces to overturn hateful laws. And because the ACNA was perceived to be untruthful in its stance against homosexuality, they were going to lose that partnership and therefore no longer be able to help these provinces get rid of the get rid of the gay, the, the hateful laws. That's, that's what how I that's because yeah. of a letter published Monday by- Right, by, by, by a by. guy that's an aspirant. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Now, but to be fair, to be fair, the initial signatories included a bishop and have some some fairly high level um, clergy people who are involved in, in some of the uh, power centers of the ACNA as of now. Um, and so I think, you know, again, um, it, it obviously caused a big enough stir that it was, um, you know, got heard around the world. But it sounds like the stir was more the other way. It was African archbishops calling Foley Beach and saying, what is going on? Yeah, and why would that have anything to do? And they weren't calling, I mean, I don't, I wasn't privy to the conversations, just to be clear. And I should say that um, too, I wasn't privy (laughs) to any of these conversations. But but it seems unlikely that they called to say, you know, now, um, since the main thing that we're concerned about is our partnership and overturning the, these laws in our province, because you've, you've allowed this letter to be published, we're no longer partnering with you. I mean, that, that seems like a stretch. I mean, maybe that was part of it, but, but it seems more likely, as he said, what the Archbishop intimated was that they called and said, what's going on? Like, what is this? Like, we read your communique, we heard what you said, and now what, what, what is it? Like, are we going back on it? Is it not something we said? I mean, that's, that's, and I think that's a fair enough question from around the world. I mean, so I keep telling people left and right is that the, the, you know, because the ACNA was birthed in part, uh, there's this symbiotic relationship, and it has a lot to do with Trinity School for Ministry, to be fair, and it's sort of global outreach is that for the past 25 or so years, because of some of the visionary aspects of not just that school, but amongst those people in that school, they have been seeing 
competing in the entire world with, with, well, for lack of a better word, evangelical Anglicans. And so it's been a wonderful symbiotic relationship. I mean, I can go around literally around the world from Singapore to, to Kenya, to Uganda, to, to New Zealand or wherever, and find uh, graduates or at least some connection to Trinity, some connection to uh, American seated evangelical Anglicanism that has been that has been spoken back and forth of to the point where, you know, you go to like a GAFCON or you looked at a hope in a future back, you know, like a decade or so ago, like you go to these meetings and it's a, it's a, it's a family reunion almost from around the world, you know, and it's a beautiful thing. We have the, um, we have the global futures Anglican, no, we have the, um, what is it called? Uh, I forget the our diocese sponsors something where we bring in people from all over the world. And not only did so many of them come through Trinity, but so many of them are are sort of one degree separated from all of us. And the point is the, the point of all that is to say that there is such a such a deep reservoir of trust and respect that has been built up that when things like this so haphazardly and cavalierly are put forward, then of course it brings into question all of this. Because you have people literally out on the front lines. Like I can think of Bishop Campicha Waro out in northern Kenya, you know, who like was standing in the Trinity book store saying, Lord, please, you know, couldn't I go back to Nairobi? Like, why do I have to go to Northern Kenya? You know, I've got four kids and I'm going up to like, to be on the front lines of militant Islam and my four kids and they're gonna be, pay us in goats and things. I mean, this is a literal thing. I mean, our church has responsibility with them. I think about him and he's just sitting out there saying, well, at the very least, the ACNA is standing firm after all they've gone through and after all of they have sacrificed, like they're our brothers in arms, even albeit halfway across the world. And so of course, when something like this comes up, that brings into question with high profile Anglican people involved with it, seemingly at the, you know, one would imagine that this letter would not have gone out without some warning to the archbishop or the bishop, which is another whole issue with it. The fact that there was not even a courtesy given to like, by the way, we're about to put into jeopardy your global relationships with people by questioning your very authority in our church. That's just why I think it makes perfect sense that these bishops called and said, what what in the world are you doing? Like we're out here on the front lines, you know, we're 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 trust you. We've we've established this relationship and we have a, a trust and this is putting into jeopardy. What gives? And I think thankfully the Archbishop, I mean he said as much, you know, he's up in the early morning this because it, it needed to be responded to. Um it, it goes on to say, and this is I wanna I wanna touch on this point really interesting it's the next point that he makes in this note because I think it's really important. I did not know how to weigh, this is Peter, Peter Valk is writing, writing this, I did not know how to weigh the potential impact of the letter on gay people in Africa against the pain gay Christians committed to a traditional sexual ethic in North America would feel if the letter was taken down. Okay, so two things here. First of all, he's portraying this as if he was, he was having this kind of conscientious problem uh, before uh, his bishop asked him to take it down before the, the uproar. He was just wrestling with his own conscience. I'm again, I, I'll, I'll let that be between him and God. Um, but I, I'm not confident given his past performance in that profession. But secondly, okay, I don't agree that those who want to identify as gay Christian or gay Anglican are committed to a traditional sexual ethic. They might be committed to part of it, and that the part of it being the celibate part. But that's not all that was involved in the traditional sexual eth ethic. All that was involved in the traditional sexual, sexual ethic is it included identifying those predispositions, those orientations, those that we used the word last time, that, that concupiscence that cuts against the natural order and confessing that as sin and not identifying with it, recognizing that that's something that is, is, is to be pushed away from and prayed against rather than something to identify with. That's the traditional sexual ethic. So I don't, I don't buy the, the idea that those who are, who are within maybe the revoice movement within the Presbyterian or reform world, or those in the, uh, the spiritual friendship movement are embracing this, the traditional Christian sexual ethic. They're embracing well, see, this selfish. is, this is, but this is the yeah. big point of confusion. And we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating because I, I downloaded his uh, why say gay pamphlet and read it. And, and I thought, you know, it, it was fairly, um, 
standard stuff as we've come to read from the kind of spiritual friendship and revoice people. But this was to this point, very interesting in some of the question and answer thing. It says, isn't merely experiencing same sex attraction sin itself? Question mark. Should that be reason enough not to call yourself gay? He asks. And this is what he says. If you not already read the discussion at the end of this document and my definition of the phrase same sex attraction and questions of sinfulness and concupiscence, please take time to do so. Thankfully, the Anglican Church in North America, along with the oldest Christian traditions that respect a majority of Christians, both in the United States and globally, do not teach that Christians sin merely by being tempted. When I experience same sex attractions, yet resist these temptations, I am not guilty of sin. That's not true. That's not true. That's neither Anglican nor biblical nor right. true. And so the fact that the the fact that the Catholic Church affirms that is is in fact true. And there is a warm and welcome embrace for people who want to hold that. Uh, one imagines uh, it was literally the fight at the time of the Reformation. It remains the most offensive aspect of what we call original sin. And yet, as Luther rightly saw, was the heart, the beating heart of the gospel, because we do not confess the sins of what we do. We confess the dispositions of our fallen nature. And the disposition of our fallen nature produces all acts of unrighteousness. But as Jesus himself said, the seat of our evil is not in what we do, but in the reality of who we are. And if yeah. we deny that, well, then we can certainly call ourselves all whatever the heck we want, as long as we don't do any of the things. Um, we can be possessed by and roiled by all manner of um, desires and temptations within, which is what we would have done until Jesus himself clarified and closed that loophole by saying, you've heard it said, you shall, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say, if you even think of a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her heart. And then the apostle Paul in the incredible theological reflection on in part, what Jesus had said in Romans chapter seven begins to expound on the fact that the law itself provoked the sin. And in particular, the 10th commandment being thou shalt not covet because that was the one that encompassed everything because to covet means that you should be God because he somehow made a mistake. And so this was the statement that Jesus said that has been understood ever since the time of the Reformation, which is when the Bible was given back to the church. And to deny that is to deny, well, the Anglican understanding of the gospel, if we even need to say that. But of course, the, the, the biblical proclamation of our, of our need and our redemption. And that's what we're fighting against. It's not these particular people. I mean, we're pastors, for goodness sakes. Like we welcome, you know, uh, all ye sinners, poor and lonely, weak and wounded by the fall, as the hymn says this is what we're welcoming but we refuse to let someone persist in um defining themselves by what the the very thing for which jesus died that's whereby what yeah whereby the lust of the flesh called in greek uh for name of that's right which, the, the, which that's some right. do expound the wisdom some spirituality some the affection some the desire that's right of the flesh is not subject to the law of god and yet although there is no condemnation for them that believed and are baptized Yet the apostle doth confess that concupiscence and lust right. hath in of itself the nature of sin. That's the Anglican position. That's yeah. from the 39 articles in case you didn't know Which what that was Which happens to calling. be is not a historical document in ACNA is in fact a legitimate form one of our formularies and is something to which aspirants alike and, and priests alike are beholden. And so I you know I don't know how how many more times we have to say this or how clearly, you know, the we have to keep um, articulating it because there is definitely an alternative position to this. And that's the one represented by the Roman Catholics. And of course, that was the fight at the time of the Reformation, because the idea is, how could you possibly be judged for things that you can't control? I mean, that's the rejoinder, right? Well, I could, I didn't ask for these desires. I didn't ask for this, this personal failing. So the only thing that can be asked of me is to deny it, you know, self-denial. And that's, there's a certain um, expediency and, and, and even fruitfulness in that, but that's not that doesn't get to the depths of the joy of the freedom of the gospel, because that's what Luther saw was that eventually, you know, the, then when the Lord and Jesus Christ said, repent, you know, he meant that the entire life of the Christian was repentance. And so how could the entire life be repentance unless your entire life required to a certain degree, a, a, a repentant posture as it were. And so when we find ourselves confronted by sinful um, inclinations and desires, which we may even wish to be rid of, or hopefully to be rid of, and yet persist, our answer in that is not to then therefore identify with them, however celibately we may, but to continue to walk in the 
the hope and the newness of life that 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 will not have victory, final victory over us. And again, that's what the Apostle Paul's talking about in Corinthians. So were some of you. You know, you're now washed and and um, you know, you you once were like this, but now you are a new creature in Christ. And it's a um, it's a torturous and sad and exhausting uh, semantic uh, game that is being played and has been played surrounding this, these quote unquote sexual identities from a Christian perspective. I totally understand how this would work itself out in a materialistic power, zero sum power game world. But in a, from a Christian perspective, it is strained so far from the, um, the categories that God has given us about which to speak of ourselves that it's, um, it's finally, I think it's finally jumping the shark it's finally coming to full circle, which is that, that they're there. And I think the bishops called it. it was like, look, from, a, from the earliest time of the teaching in our church, we are going to navigate and catechize people in an alternative world with an alternative language and an alternative um, soundtrack, as it were, where sexuality is not an identifying characteristic of the human being. It is an aspect of human life. It is a good to be enjoyed or to be not to be abused, but we are refusing against the culture to call ourselves fundamentally and essentially sexual beings. And that is something Christian, it's not Freudian, but it's Christian. And to push back on that in this way is something meet and right. It's appropriate that this is all happening the first week or two of Lent. We just worshiped through Ash Wednesday when we have the three of us, we have a line of people coming up to us and they sort of extend their foreheads and we have, we have ash on our thumbs and we reach toward them and we say, remember that you are, and we don't say anything other than dust and to dust you shall return. Like there is no part of your identity that is not dead in trespasses and sins. Remember that you are dust. It is only by the miraculous intervention of Christ's finished work for you that you have new life. The you that would identify as anything else is dead, literally dead with this ashen cross on your forehead. And now we can begin a new life as uh, J.D. referred to St. Paul, the, the old has gone and a new has come. Amen. Amen. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know, given my, in part your experience too, uh, everyone's experienced in AC and they probably, but who's, who's come out of the Episcopal church. We, we, we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking this is, this is over. I mean, the, the revisionists don't quit like this. What they do is they make a they they make a bold step forward. They get they get pushed back. They retreat, and they start nibbling around the edges. They start, you know, in very quiet, sometimes less public ways, building uh, networks, pushing certain boundaries and the flanks eroding the foundation and then later you know much later when conditions are better then they then they make an, another frontal assault so that's that's the strategy revisionists unlike unlike sadly conservatives or orthodox people revisionists don't give up they will their 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 aim is to take over and corrupt the whole institution and and that that they're, they're in it for the long game so i don't think this is over by a long shot in the wider perspective this is just one, one front in a larger war that we've been talking about over the course of the last, you know, many months with regard to, you know, wokeism and the, the incursion of a, of a secularized sub-Christian view of social justice is pushing its way into, into the church. This is just one branch of that. So we won this battle, I think, we can probably say, although he's, he's still fighting, is this thing he just posted suggests we've won this battle but we are we are not out of the woods the the acna um there are several places in the acna that are that are just open doors for people who have uh, essentially an unchristian revisionist mindset around about the scriptures and about christian doctrine they're, they're coming in through these various open doors he's you know, at least one diocese and um maybe more uh, that, that welcomes folk like that. So we can expect this kind of thing to go on for years and years and years into the future. Unless, unless of course, and I'm, I'm really heartened by, by the way the bishops reacted to this, the Archbishop and Bishop Menz and other bishops I know who were talking about this behind the scenes, unless our bishops take a real strong stand right now like they, with that, and enforce that statement like they did with this and keep enforcing that statement, 
I would I would urge them in, in, in all you know humility to put out a similar statement on racial relationships. Amen. And uh, and draw a line there that we refuse to let to be let be crossed and enforce it with the same with the That's same right. vigilance. And um, and then we'll be on their way to gaining and keeping the high ground. Otherwise, That's right. And and to encourage them, I mean, to the extent that all of them listen to this, I'm sure. But it's like <laughs> what I want to keep telling them is like the, there's this there's this persistent fear which I hear in, in my conversations with a few bishops about the quote unquote young people. You know, we're going to lose the young people, and I want to tell them like, do not be afraid. You know, I've been since I've been 18, I've been considered to be on the wrong side of quote unquote young people in the church because I've was um, confident in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And if anything, what we're actually watching is that people that are looking for that type of courage and conviction, like sheep who want shepherds are um, on the fence, ironically, or appropriately, or however you want to keep taking these, um, uh, when they look at our response to some of these questions, because people are actually looking for courage and conviction and direction in a confusing and dispiriting time. And I think that these, this idea that for the quote unquote mission's sake, we need to put all of our actual convictions uh, way far in the back and lead with all of these amorphous, platitudinous kind of, um, you know, saccharine, um, vague spiritualisms is wrongheaded and cowardly and and misguided and, and a false counsel. And I mean, I just keep, I don't know how many more words I can use to characterize it, but it should be resisted. And I think if anything, we're going to see that, that the churches, and this has already been the case we've talked about before churches that are pastoral and loving and courageous are going to continue to attract the quote-unquote young people who are in fact converted and are listening and and thirsty and hungry for something of the lord through the spirit and through the word as opposed to something they could just as easily find at a soul cycle or at a um you know, at a, a rainbow blossom um, uh, self-help uh, juice bar in Louisville, Kentucky, for, for instance, you know, which has, you know, I mean, out of the air. reading your chakras, turn your, your Enneagram, I mean, you know, I could sit around and talk for 75 hours about my Enneagram numbers and, um, and while drinking, you know, it's some sort of like goat's milk um, sh- uh, shake with wheatgrass chaser or something. And, um, and feel vaguely spiritual, but that's not what people are, that's not what Christian people are actually looking for. And then the, the church is not going to grow through uh, cowardice and amorphous spirituality. And that's what I think a lot of people are, are afraid of. And I just, you know, I'm one person, but, um, but I, I would like to at least encourage, again, with that quote that we saw, that, that there are sheep who are heartened and encouraged and, and, and strengthened by the um, the strong arm of a faithful leader. And I think that's what we continue to pray for and, and are grateful for so far in our church. Uh, so let me, let me finish uh, this letter up. There's not too much more to comment on, but he says, um, so late, uh, late Tuesday afternoon, I phoned my bishop to seek his wisdom because the global impact of the letter had become too complex for me to discern. I asked my bishop for his wisdom. I made clear that if he asked me to take the letter down, I would follow his request. He asked me to take the, down the letter. I continue to be convinced that gay, same-sex attracted Christians, notice use of that language, committed to celibacy or a mixed orientation marriage need to hear the confessions and commitments the letter offered. I chose to submit to my bishop's wisdom because I trust the Holy Spirit to guide the Orthodox bishops who have been given the authority of the apostles. So again, notice how, you know, he's portraying himself as really involved in the international conversation and worried in his mind about the ramifications that his letter might have on, on the, the less than bright African bishops. Um, and so he called his bishop, his bishop didn't call him, he called his bishop uh, to see if he could take if he should take it down and there's no other pressure, no one else talking to him. It's just his own, you know, charitable choice here. So. And that's I, actually a softening of the original screenshot that was on the webpage that had hosted the letter when it was originally removed. Originally it said that he had been asked to take the letter down and did so out of obedience, not because bishops are always right, but because he trusts the Holy Spirit to work in the situation. Um, so he, he, at least I think to his credit has softened that language away from the implication that in this case, my Bishop is wrong, but I'm going to do what he asked me to do out of submission. That actually um, leads me to what 
might be our final uh, point of conversation this week, which is um, what does it mean to faithfully submit to a bishop? Well, I mean, I would say that if your bishop says, I think you should not talk about this anymore, that you shouldn't talk about that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, it might, it might shock you guys, but there have been a couple of occasions in my ministry when my bishop has asked me not to not to say any more about a certain situation. I know it's surprising. I mean, it's you know I can be uh, oh, sometimes on the internet. You yeah, can say yeah, strong things yeah. on the internet. Yeah, but you know about those times because I haven't said <laughs> I haven't posted something that says, "Well, I had to take this down because my bishop made me." And even though I, you know, sometimes bishops can be wrong. Hint, hint, hint. In this right. case. Right. In this case, I'm going to make sure. Okay, I... boomer bishop. Yeah. And that's what you yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So, so I think it. I, look, one of the traditionally the way clerics are supposed to understand their bishops, insofar as their bishops are orthodox and giving them biblical instruction, is that that instruction has come from Christ Himself. And so, you you submit your understanding of it. You submit your thoughts about it to those of your bishop trusting that God is going to lead his church through those leaders he's appointed. And yeah, okay, that uh, bishops, of course, are not infallible. So if he's wrong, the responsibility for the error lies with him, not with you, if you've, if you, uh, if you've submitted yourself to what's not an unbiblical order. So I, I think that the stance has to be, I'm going to take what comes out of my bishop's mouth as, as from the Lord, not, again, not in a revelatory or an errant sense, but in the sense that this is what the Lord would have me do. He would have me obey in this situation. And, and, and not just giving, you know, as Paul says about slaves masters, not just giving lip service, but from the heart, from a, a true willingness to submit, submit yourself to, to what God is saying to you through the one he's appointed over you. And well, if you it, really do think that there's truly problematic wrongness happening, we have recourse to other bishops. We are, we, we are not supposed to go out on our own. We are men under authority and we have more than one authority we can appeal to. Well, yeah. And we've, and we, I mean, Nick and I together have wrestled with this when we were in the Episcopal church, uh, because, you know, our bishop was a kind enough man and, um, and it was, was, was generous to us. Uh, we had some theological differences and there was always a constant question as to what would be, what would be the scenario whereby we could no longer faithfully obey this bishop and to, to the, to the degree that it never made it to that point where we were, he asked us to say or not say um, something that we otherwise uh, couldn't agree with, but there would come a point one imagine. I mean, he had a, he had a theory, you know, like currently given what happened to Bishop love, one imagines that if you were the rector of a church and you, you personally believed that you couldn't do allow for same sex marriage in your church. And yet because of the new canons, you were forced to, I mean, I think that would be a step too far personally, you know, that would be a situation where you would say, and so similarly speaking, I think that the honest thing to do for some of these people who who have made their minds and their conviction and their consciences have been made up that this is in fact a hill to die on. This is the argument that they must make before God. You know, I'm not going to spend my time, you know, trying to silence them or keep them uh, from saying that. But I, if I were a bishop, I would say, you know, at some point, son, you know, you and I are going to have to decide which one of us is in charge of this diocese in this church because this is what I say. And if you, I respect your freedom of opinion, but, but there is a hierarchy here. And I think that's what we're looking at across the board is that there's always the freedom we have to walk away. You know, there's a freedom we have to say, you're asking me something, Bishop, that I, you know, I trust you and we've, we've walked this long together, but I no longer can do that. And that's not something anyone wants to, um, to, you know, that's not with, with uh, a joy to do, but that's certainly always the case as opposed to, you know, sort of subtly undermining or, or just blatantly passive aggressively, um, calling into question their leadership and their wisdom, you know, and I think that's less desirable, you could say, than, than, than the forthright answer. And I think that this, that the statement on the gay Christian language was very clear. And there are people who obviously continue to disagree with that. And now the question is just hanging over, you know, are we going to, are people are going to follow the direction of the, of the bishops and the teaching and training and catechetical functions of the church, you know, when we talk 
talk to, I mean, according to the Bishop's statement, when we begin to talk to confused high schoolers and middle schoolers, we do not reference this identity as as if it were a, a Christian possibility. We talk about sinfulness and the broken realities of all all of our uh, humanity and and so on and so forth, but we do not enter into the entire semantic domain of the quote unquote gay Christian world. That is what we have been asked to do. And if that's something you can't abide or that you simply refuse to do, well, then you need to really consider if how you're going to walk forward in good conscience under authority uh, for um, for the foreseeable future. I mean, I'm, I'm like this too. I mean, I'm not currently a rector. And so I have to check a lot of things with my own rector, much less the bishop and say, you know, I know I'm not, you didn't hire me to make your life harder. And, and some of the things, frankly, I've had to either change or temper. And I'm fine with that because I, that's part of the deal that I've signed up for and one that I respect. And and I think that going forward, we're going to see, hopefully, I mean, not that they turn into a bunch of, you know, uh, autocratic tyrants, you know, but that there is a beautiful wisdom in the combined experience and um, gifting in that college. And I hope that this is an encouragement to them, whatever, despite the pushback, however slight it was, that um, the, like I said before, that the sheep are encouraged and and are um, are moving about the cabin with a little more freedom uh, than they than before. Um, the again, sheep I'm are moving about the cabin. <laughs> Well, these these particular sheep are being flown, okay. um, uh, like the um, <laughs> like the the ostriches or the the fl- fighting falcons of one of the Arab Emirates princes in first class you, on a uh, on a jet. Are you the anyway, Cut all of that out. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, that's what I would say under authority of a bishop is we don't you know we're not in we're not in um, medieval. Um, the Holy Roman Empire in the medieval, uh, late medieval ages, like we're not at danger of being put to death if we disagree with our authority. Um, and we we have some freedom in that. But at the same time, we do make an oath and we do swear um, to to as best we can follow the leadership and guidance of those who have put have been put ahead of us. And I don't think that's unquestioning. And I, I have a good relationship with my bishop. And to the extent that he was asking me to do something that I think was really appropriate or I was having a huge problem with, he'd be the first person to sit down with me and really talk through and say, you know, what, what's going on here? Why do you think this, you know, are we sure we can't find a way forward? And I'm grateful for that. But at the end of the day, if we reached an impasse, then it would have to say, well, in good conscience, I'm either going to agree with what he says, or I'm going to have to figure out a different way of, um, of walking because I can't, I can't stand in good conscience and just um, uh, abject defiance of this person that I've purported to, to follow. And it's probably worth mentioning, perhaps as something like a final word, that though it is totally true that bishops can be and have been wrong, so can presbyters, so can deacons, and so can lay people. And we need to have that kind of humility too, that when we think a bishop is wrong, it may well be that we are. <laughs> and that's their role is to help help us to see maybe when we're wrong. And so I've been wrong and we've been wrong. And we hope that Jesus Christ will redeem all of this stuff. And we we, we know his His promise is sure that his, his church will endure. Amen. Anything last, any last words you guys want to say? I see shaking heads. Okay, that means it's going to be all the time that we have this week. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. If you want to keep this conversation going, please be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks, as always, to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon. We will be back next week, Lord willing. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. (laughs) 